in October 1st, seven years ago, this coming October 1st, uh, we had the privilege of welcoming Pastor Nick and Bethany Rogers to our church staff. And uh, they came with the uh, encouragement and the directions to help establish a youth ministry. At that time, we had a, a, a small handful, and by small handful, I mean a small handful of youth who gathered somewhat regularly uh, here. And uh, for the last almost seven years now, Pastor Nick and Bethany have labored faithfully uh, establishing through, through God's work, God establishing a, the Logos student ministry at CCF, and lives have been transformed and, uh, and changed, and people have heard the gospel, and adults and youth have been utilized in ministry, and God has worked powerfully for his glory. And it's amazing to stand back and see what God has done through these faithful servants. And I share all of that, and having to think now the thought is crossing my mind. Some of you are thinking, where are they going? They're not going anywhere, except we have the privilege, we have the privilege of sending them away for a little over a month of sabbatical rest. And so this is their last Sunday with us until October, and uh, they are going to spend time, almost all of that time out west as a family, traveling, being able to spend time together, investing in relationships together, worshiping with various local church congregations, and being nourished day by day from the word. So I would ask you, as they're away, to encourage them, and the best way you can encourage them is by committing to pray for them while they're gone. Uh, to pray for them that God would provide rest and refreshment, that God would provide encouragement, uh, that God would bless them even as they face some of the, the, the pull of not being here, although they would long to be here and, and with the relationships that they have here, that this would be a joyful, restful time for their family and that he would bring them back refreshed and revitalized uh, as, as they go. Will you commit to that? Amen? Amen, amen. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and away from worthless gain. God, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and that you would transform us by the things that we see. God, that you would give us greater faith, that you would give us greater joy. And God, we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen, amen. Kids, you are dismissed. The rest of you, if you would grab your Bible and open with me to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, if you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we will be on page 911, <laughs> which I hope is not emblematic of the kind of sermon this will be. As you are finding Acts chapter 2, let me give you a note about this morning's sermon. Almost every sermon preached from this pulpit, whether it's me or one of the other elders, is what we might call an expositional sermon. Say that with me, expositional sermon. This means that the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. An expositional sermon takes one central passage of Scripture and mines down into it to draw up its truth and meaning and then proclaims the truth and meaning for the church to see and apply. 
And we preach expositional sermons because expositional sermons are the clearest way for the people of God, we believe, to hear the word of God. God has a word. God wants to speak to the church, and he speaks to the church through his word by his spirit. And so with a topical sermon, which would be the, another form of preaching, with a topical sermon, you are getting the Bible, but only after it's been filtered through the outline of the preacher. So you're getting the preacher's thoughts with some supporting texts and passages kind of drawn in to support their premises. But in an expositional sermon, the text itself is the supporting skeleton of the message. And this is why we almost always preach expositional sermons and why next week we will return to working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We started almost a year ago. We're taking it section by section and we'll return there next week. But you can probably guess with a setup like that, we are not going to go the expositional route this morning. And I wanted just to kind of share that and share why that is. This morning, we are going to look at a primary text, but most of our time we'll be looking at other texts that have to do with our topic, and the topic is corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. Oftentimes, in member interviews or when we meet with people who are new to the church, one of the first things they will say that they noticed about our church is that we pray a lot, and we pray a long time sometimes. In fact, I have a good friend who said that after his first time at CCF, he didn't like how long we prayed, so he went somewhere else for a while and worshiped there. And thankfully, the Lord drew him back here, and he's been a faithful member here for for a time now as well. But maybe you have had a similar thought. Why in the world do we pray so often, and why are some of the prayers long? And so this morning, I want to ask two primary questions, and I want to try to answer two primary questions. The first question is this, how should the church pray? How should the church pray? And we will spend the vast majority of our time there. And then the second question is this, why do we pray the way we do? Why at CCF do we pray the way we do? We're going to spend most of our time on this question, why should, or how should the church pray? Because the most important thing about our church or any other church is not what makes it unique, but what makes it similar to every other faithful church. In other words, the most important things about CCF ought to be things that we share in common with every other faithful church. Our goal is not to be innovative. Our goal is not to be groundbreaking revolutionary or new, our goal is to be faithful. And we believe as gospel-centered, Bible-teaching churches seek to be faithful, there will be uniquenesses, of course. But those uniquenesses will be on the periphery, and what's at the center will be that which is in common with all other faithful churches, which is why we will spend the majority of our time on how should the church pray, and a little bit of time at the end on why we at CCF pray the way we do. Now, before we get to those two questions, I think it's good for us to see how central prayer has been to the church. In fact, you can trace corporate prayer all the way back in the church to the Bible and all the way back really to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Specifically, I want you to look at this text that hopefully you're open to now, Acts chapter 2. 
Pastor Nick Rogers preached this text a couple of weeks ago, so we're not going to take a lot of time here, but I do want to back up to give you some context, and we're going to begin reading in verse 36. So this is the day of Pentecost. Peter is finishing up a sermon to a multi-ethnic group gathered in Jerusalem, and he ends his sermon like this, verse 36. The word of the Lord says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a lot here, but our focus this morning is on the last part of verse 42. This new church that has been newly formed is devoting themselves, they are devoting themselves to four things, and the fourth is the prayers. We see this as we move throughout the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John are arrested and then they're warned not to preach the gospel. And then for good measure, they're beaten so they would remember to not present the gospel. When they go back to the church, the church gathers together and the first thing that they did was to lift their voices and pray. Or later, in Acts chapter 6, the local church is facing division over the physical needs in the body that are going unmet. And so the church appoints a group of men to serve the church's physical needs so that the apostles can continue to focus on scripture and prayer. Then after selecting these men, the church gathers and they they lay their hands on these men and they pray for them. And that's to say nothing of Acts chapter 12, where Peter is arrested, and immediately the church begins to meet and to pray earnestly for him. Or Acts chapter 13, where the church prays together before they send out Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey. Or we could go on as we look through Scripture, and we could see that as Acts continues, the church gathers together regularly to pray. Then later, Paul uses several of his letters to encourage the church to pray corporately, to pray together. And then James, the brother of Jesus, provokes the church to pray together often, and so does Peter. In fact, if you spend much time at all just kind of looking, surveying the New Testament teaching on corporate prayer, on prayer together, there are several themes that emerge, several themes that help us answer our first question this morning, which is, how should the church pray? How should the church pray? First, the church should pray regularly. The church should pray regularly. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, it seems really obvious. Like the church should pray regularly. Of course, that's what you would say, the church should pray regularly. Shouldn't all Christians pray regularly? But if you were to scan the landscape of evangelicalism in the world today, I don't know that you would always walk away with the impression that prayer in the local church is fundamental. You might think that slick programming is fundamental. You might think that fancy facilities are fundamental. Or that that well-produced services that are smooth and seamless and memorable and witty are fundamental. Or great music is fundamental. But would you walk away with the impression that corporate prayer is fundamental? Sometimes I, I fear that in evangelicalism today, we can approach corporate prayer simply as a filler or something that's sometimes used to smooth out transitions. You can imagine maybe a group of leaders sitting around a table before a Sunday worship service thinking, okay, we have to get the band off the stage and we need to get the preacher on the stage. So how can we do that that would be slick and seamless and smooth? And someone suggests, oh, I know, let's just pray. Because while everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, we can move the band off and we can move the preacher on and then voila, we've got it. But friends, according to the pattern of the early church, prayer was a core part of their regular gatherings. The word devoted here in verse 42 means to stay by or to persist at. So the church should stay by prayer. We should persist at prayer. Prayer isn't something that we devote ourselves to only when the budget is tight and the ministry needs are crushing. No, regular times of prayer is something that the church, all local churches, ought to be known for. Like we never move beyond prayer. Prayer is not something we give ourselves to as fundamental in the early days of a church plant or the early days of a revitalization or when tragedy or um, trials come. Prayer is something that we give ourselves to because it is fundamental to our purpose. Flip to the right, in fact, to Acts chapter 6. I want you to see this. In Acts 6, as I mentioned earlier, the role of deacon in the church is created primarily so that the elders can devote themselves to prayer and scripture. Now, the word deacon and the word elders aren't precisely in Acts chapter 6. It's, it's, it's built on that foundation as we move out of Acts chapter 6. But I want you to see the priority that the early church placed on prayer. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Incidentally, these are the two fundamental functions of elders in the church today. We are to focus ourselves and our work on scripture and prayer both privately and corporately. 
the, the marching orders, the directives of church leadership is not ingenuity, it's not innovativeness or cleverness or creativity, all of which can be good things. It's not administrative acumen or executive level talent. It's giving ourselves to the word and to prayer, privately and corporately. If this is the case, then we should ask, how much time are we giving to prayer when we gather as believers? And I don't just mean now in our Sunday morning gathering, but I also mean when small groups gather, when Sunday schools gather, you gather with others for Bible study. Which brings us to our second question, which is how should the church pray? Or same question, but second answer to the question, how should the church pray? Secondly, the church should pray corporately. Corporately. Corporate means shared or together or collective. It means that we don't just come together as the church and then sit and pray alone. It means we share together in our prayers. In fact, praying corporately is one of the gifts that we give to one another. So as men and women pray, as we pray from the platform or in small groups or Sunday school classes or discipling relationships, one of the the gifts that you give your brothers and sisters in this body are your shared prayers for them and with them. This means that we share in prayer together, even when someone else is vocalizing the prayer. You may have wondered, why is it sometimes when someone comes up here to pray and they'll say, let's pray together, but then only one voice is heard? Like, why don't we all lift up our voices? Well, the answer is because we're all agreeing in prayer. We're all following along and saying, yeah, that's right. That's where I am. Yep, I agree. That's true. Yes, forgive me too. Agreeing and following along and praying together. I remember... When I was a, a boy, my brother and I would go and spend the night with my, my grandparents, my dad's parents, and I remember specifically every time we spent the night and we would get ready for bed, my grandparents would come into the room where my brother and I were sleeping, and they would sit on the, on the, at the foot of the bed, and they would pray. And sometimes they would both pray. Um, oftentimes, it was just my grandpa who would pray, but I remember the whole time that he would be praying, my grandma would be sitting there and saying, that's right, yes, that's right. That's right. And, and pray for them. Yeah, and their, their children, so and so and so and so. Yep, and, and the ministry that they have. Yep, and, and the other work on the mission field. And like she would be praying along and she would be adding in other words sometimes, like agreeing, right? A sentence here or there, a, a sentence fragment here and there, contributing to that prayer. She was following along, right? She was agreeing in prayer. Even though she wasn't the, the one vocalizing that prayer, she was right there. And that's what we do. Earlier I referenced Acts chapter 13, but I want you to see that for yourself as well. This is another opportunity to see corporate prayer at work. The church agreeing in prayer. Acts 13. One of the greatest sounds in our corporate worship. Right there, the sounds of pages turning. So Barnabas and Saul, who will shortly become Paul, are part of a local church in the city of Antioch. They're leaders there. They're likely elders there. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it tells us while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this is the church in Antioch, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you get the idea of what's happening. The church in Antioch is worshiping, they're fasting together, and it was during this time that the Lord made it clear that Barnabas and Saul were to go out as missionary church planters. So what did the church do? They fasted some more, then they prayed together, then together they laid their hands on these two brothers and they sent them off in faith. This laying on of hands in the Bible is a way of showing solidarity. It's a a way of showing that this person is going as an extension of my hands. It communicates support and blessing. So the church should pray corporately. And by corporately, I mean any time believers gather together, we can pray like this. Which may bring up a question in your mind if you've been tracking over the last few weeks as we've been going through this series. And I want to take a few minutes and just address that question you may be asking. And the question may go something like this. Okay, we've talked about baptism two weeks ago. Last week we talked about the Lord's Supper, and now we're talking about corporate prayer. And when Pastor Nick preached on baptism He said that we would prefer to baptize people in our corporate gathering. We would prefer to limit baptism somewhat to this gathering here if we could. And then last week, I preached about how the Lord's Supper should primarily be received together when we gather as a church in this format. But now, as we talk about corporate prayer, I'm encouraging everyone to pray whether we're gathered here corporately or to pray corporately when we gather as small groups or in Sunday school classes or with other believers. So why is it that corporate prayer is encouraged in any kind of setting but not baptism? And why is it the Lord's Supper, to go one step further, is even discouraged except when we gather together? Like, why are there different kind of spheres in which we can practice these three things. Does that make sense? Maybe you're asking that question. Maybe now you're asking that question. You're like, didn't think of that before, but that's a really good question. Well, we take probably an hour to answer that in depth, but let me just provide an overview of why we believe that there are different times that these three things should be practiced. This week, Pastor Nick Runlett helped put together this alliteration It'll be on the screen. We believe that the Lord's Supper should primarily be in the church. By the church, I mean the corporate gathering of the church together like this. Primarily. Doesn't mean it's a sin to have the Lord's Supper outside of that. It means it should primarily be practiced here. We believe that baptism, we prefer that to happen here. Like as we witnessed this morning, we prefer that. Which is a a less strong word than primarily. But still connotes the idea that we would encourage it here. And then corporate prayer is practiced in all of life. Let's start with the Lord's Supper. As I said last week, the Lord's Supper not only represents our union with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, but also 
our union with the present body of Christ, the church. In fact, one of the sins of some in the Corinthian church, again, we saw this last week, was that they had privatized the Lord's Supper. They failed to care well and unite with one another in the Lord's Supper. They made it just about me and Jesus without discerning the body and waiting for one another and taking it when they were all together. When we take the Lord's Supper, friends, it is a picture of the unity that we have in Christ. It's a picture of the common responsibility we have for one another, to care for one another and to watch over one another until Christ returns. Therefore, we believe the Lord's Supper should primarily be in the regular gathering of the church. Now, you might be thinking a secondary question to that, which is, Yeah, but when our small group gathers, isn't that a church? Isn't that the church? Why can't we just call our small group a church? Isn't youth group a form of a church? Isn't any time believers gather together, isn't that the church? Especially if they're doing spiritual things. And again, we don't have time to go into detail here about what truly makes a church a church. But the answer to that question I would submit to you is no. The church biblically isn't just any time believers gather together. It's not, it isn't just when a group of people gather together and open a Bible. There's an, a sense in which every Christian around the world is a part of the universal church. But the corporate church, the local church, exists when the criteria or the qualifications that the Bible outlines are met. The Bible is clear that just a group of Christians meeting together is not A church gathering, there are certain criteria, certain irreducible minimums. For example, the church consists of a variety of believers who are committed to one another, who are committed to do discipleship together, who are committed to discipline one another as is needed, who are committed together to grow in godliness and love and good works. According to the New Testament's teaching on the church, the church also must include duly appointed or a duly appointed plurality of elders who together preach the word and teach the word and counsel the word and apply the word to equip those committed believers and give themselves to prayer. The church also should include singing together and praying together. The church should include sending out members of its body for evangelism throughout the week and missionaries sent to the nations for the glory of God. The local church should practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper together. So the local church then in the New Testament is not simply a collection of believers who hang out or do spiritual things or even study the Bible together. Those are great things to do. We would encourage those things. In fact, this week, you're going to get an email from Pastor Nick Runlet about small groups, encouraging you to be a part of a small group. Those things are fantastic. But they're not the same as the local gathering of the local church. Therefore, we believe the Lord's Supper should primarily be received when the church gathers, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God. But what about baptism? You'll notice on the chart that we say we prefer baptism to be celebrated when the church gathers. You'll notice the word preferred is not quite as strong as primarily. 
And this, we believe, comes to an issue of prudence. So true, there are baptisms in the New Testament that take place outside the local church gathering. But when you begin to look below the surface, it's, it's almost always because there was not yet a local church in that area. There wasn't a church family. It was only one person or a person and their family members. So let me ask a question. If you were baptized, let's say, by your uncle in your neighbor's pool with a few friends gathered around, is that legitimate baptism? And I would say, if you were baptized trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ alone for your sin, then the answer is a resounding yes. Baptisms that happen outside the regular worship gathering of the church are not second-class baptisms. They're not. But here's why we would say we prefer baptisms in our worship gatherings. Because there, we believe, are certain advantages or blessings, we could call them, to being baptized in the local gathering of the church for worship. Let me just give you a few of these advantages or blessings that happen when believers are baptized among their church family as we're gathered for worship. First, it allows us an opportunity to go public with our faith in Jesus Christ. It allows us to publicly declare to our entire church family, this is my identity. I am now united to Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, which means I am now united to you as brothers and sisters in the faith. It conveys that clearly. It doesn't just say it, but it pictures it. Also, it allows your testimony to be a powerful witness to the believers in the room and the unbelievers in the room. I've had people come up to me before after we have a baptism in one of our services and they'll say, you know what, like, I've gone here a long time and I've never heard the gospel like that clear before. <laughs> I hope you're not offended. Not at all. It's one of the glories. In fact, perhaps even this morning as Daniel was sharing the gospel and the work of Christ in his life and you were saying, yep, that's true, that's me. Yeah, that happened in my life. Or you were saying, wow, I've gone here one time or three times or I've gone here for 30 years and I've never, I've never heard that before. Christ has a way of making that come alive as we share our testimonies with one another. Another reason we encourage baptisms in the corporate gathering of the church is because it invites your Christian family into your Christian walk. So we can encourage you and spur you on as we do ministry together as we pass one another in the hallway, as we meet together in the same small group, as we see each other in Kroger at the park. We recognize these are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It allows your church family to celebrate with you even as we are reminded of God's saving work in us. Just watching some of your heads as Daniel was sharing earlier this morning, you're going, yeah, it's true. That's my testimony too. God's done the same work in my heart. Which is why we, we know that it is uncomfortable to get up front. We know it's uncomfortable to speak publicly, right? It's like death and then secondly public speaking are the things people fear the most in every survey. 
and yet we, we encourage it because we think that the pros outweigh the cons. We think it's worth it. We think it's a great thing. And we know that everyone else out here is on your side, is rooting for you, is encouraging you, is saying, you can do this. I know this is hard. I know it's hard to get up front and talk. I know it's hard to share what Christ has done. You're like, this this is good. And we're with you. We're your family. So, if you want to be baptized, will we require that it be done in a regular worship service? No. No but we will encourage you to be baptized here in our gatherings. Or at least, at the very least, in a gathering of other brothers and sisters in Christ from CCF. Now, shifting from the Lord's Supper then to prayer, Lord's Supper and baptism, I should say, to prayer, we see prayer being practiced pretty much any time the believers are gathered. They're praying corporately all the time. Which is why we would say we encourage corporate prayer in any setting, in any venue, in any format. We're not about to say, no one pray, only when we come in here you can pray. Never. Never. Prayer is not an ordinance in the same way baptism and the Lord's Supper is. And we see corporate prayer practiced all the time. So I'm going to end kind of this long parenthetical part just by saying I would encourage you, if you hopefully see the distinction between primary and preferred and practiced. You may not even agree, and that's okay. This is not an issue you have to agree to to be a member of CCF or to sign on to. You can see it different ways. I would encourage you to look into Scripture. Answer these questions for yourself. But getting back to how should the church pray, we've seen that the church should pray regularly and corporately, but the church should also pray humbly and expectantly. There are lots of prayers in the Bible, but remarkably, one of the things you don't see in the Bible are prayers, very often, that demand things from God. For example, when Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council and the Jewish Supreme Court in Acts chapter 4, they're charged not to preach Jesus anymore, and as I said earlier, then they're beaten and released. And what we don't find in Acts chapter 4 is the church then gathering together and praying against the power of the enemy. Or claiming protection for the cause of Christ. You know, we're, we're doing your work, Jesus, so you need to protect us. Or even demanding to know from the Lord why it is that they were beaten and arrested. But what we find them praying instead is, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There is a humility that marks the prayers of believers. Why? Because in prayer, we are acknowledging our weakness and God's sufficiency. In prayer, we are acknowledging our limitations and God's power. We are acknowledging the fact that we know very little of why things happen the way they do, and we are incapable of changing much around us. And it could be after, in the last couple of weeks as you've just kind of read about and studied the, the plight of the brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan right now. Suffering and being, 
being hunted down and killed for their faith. And we mourn and we pray and we weep for these dear brothers and sisters who are gathering to worship on the Lord's Day at risk of their very lives. And one of the interesting things just in reading throughout the last couple of weeks testimonies from pastors and leaders coming out of the church in Afghanistan is very little of their attention is given to praying for rescue from their physical circumstances. Not that that's wrong to pray that way, and you see that in some of their prayers, but the primary focus of their prayers are pray that God would give us a boldness. Pray that God would give us courage and faith. Pray that God would strengthen us as a church. Pray that the gospel would go out more effectively and more clearly as a result of this present suffering. Pray that other people who are on the fence or those who have never heard the gospel would see our witness and turn to Christ. Pray that the Taliban leaders, as Chris prayed this morning, would repent and believe the gospel. That's the primary focus of their prayer just as it was in Acts chapter 4. And it's so incredibly convicting because so often our prayers can be, God, make me less uncomfortable. But in corporate prayer, we come humbly before the creator God of all things. And we come expectantly. We pray because we are weak and God is not. So we expect God to hear. We expect him to care. We know that he is not limited. I love in Acts chapter 12, when, which is what Ian preached a few weeks ago, there's this recounting of God releasing Peter from prison. And in Acts chapter, five, or Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we read, And Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We're not told what they were praying, but we are told they were praying earnestly. And I pray that an earnestness would mark our prayer as a church. When we gather together corporately here in small groups and Bible studies and discipling relationships, there would be an earnestness that marks our prayer for unbelievers. An earnestness that marks our prayer for those in suffering. An earnestness that marks our prayer that God would break our hearts for the lost. He would give us courage and conviction We would care more, as Chris prayed this morning, about what God thinks than what others think of us. So as promised, I want to end this message now by just drawing attention to some ways that we pray the way we do at CCF. I'm just going to hit on these rather quickly, but seven things that kind of mark the way we pray at CCF. And if nothing else, my goal is to kind of Draw attention to some things so that in the coming weeks when we gather for worship, you're like, oh yeah, I, I remember that. Oh, there, there's some intentionality about that. Oh, I didn't think of that before. That's what Chris is doing. That's what Jeff's doing. That's what Nick's doing. That's what Ed's doing. I see that. Seven kind of markers. First, we pray often. We pray often at CCF. There's a prayer of praise after we hear the word of God calling us to worship together, which is what we read together in our scriptural call to worship. We're wanting to hear the voice of God from the word of God, call the people of God to worship the Son of God by the Spirit of God. And so after we do that, then we immediately, now that we have entered God's course with thanksgiving, we 
praised him, we want to pray a prayer of praise. Which is what so often Pastor Matt leads us in, a prayer of praise. And then we sing a song that has to do with the glory of God and the sufficiency of God and the greatness of God to once again direct our attention onto who God is. And then we will typically sing a song that has to do with our sin and our need of salvation, our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform our lives. And then one of the pastor elders comes and leads us in what we call the pastoral prayer. That in light of the gospel, we need forgiveness. In light of the gospel, we know that Christ is sufficient. We know that we are now united to him. So we bring our requests to him. We bring our needs to him. We lay those at his feet. And then we typically sing a song that has to do with the assurance of our pardon through the work of Jesus Christ. And then a song that prepares us for the preaching of God's word. And then there's a prayer at the beginning of the sermon Praying that God would open up the eyes and the minds of his people to his word, that we would be transformed. That he would open blind eyes and lead them to salvation. Then we pray a closing prayer. Asking God to take the seed, scripture talks about the word of God as seed, and plant it deep into our hearts and transform us and use us as we go out as ambassadors and evangelists and missionaries in our world. We pray often. Secondly, we pray with Scripture. We pray with Scripture so often by reading Scripture before we pray, or by praying through Scripture, or by utilizing Scripture verses in our prayers, or sometimes all of the above. We do that because Scripture provides a really good pattern for us. It provides the words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to pray to God. Third, we pray long sometimes. You may think, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5 not to heap up empty words and phrases? That is true. But what Jesus was talking about was seeking to impress others or impress God by our long-windedness in prayer. And Jesus himself would sometimes pray all night long. The church would gather together and pray for a long time. There is great need and we serve a great Savior. We also pray long prayers because it removes the tentacles of of people pleasing from us. And if we wanted to just draw a huge crowd, the last thing we would do is spend 10, 15 minutes in the middle of our service and just all bow our heads and pray. But it reminds us that this time is about God and his glory. And it removes the tentacles of wanting to appear slick or entertaining or witty. Fourth, we pray oftentimes prepared prayers. You might think, well, that's kind of weird. Isn't it kind of lose some of the authenticity if you pray prayers that are prepared? I remember the church I served before coming here. I was in my early 20s and one of the old retired pastors came up to me several different times and he would say, brother, don't bring your notes, don't bring your homework, don't study, don't prepare, just get up and let the Spirit lead. Hmm. Well, I kind of thought the Spirit was leading on Monday when I prepared and Tuesday when I prepared it. I think that we can think that, can't we? That there's something about a prepared prayer seems less authentic than someone getting up and just speaking from the heart. But I think 
Those two things are not mutually exclusive. We can prepare from the heart through the leading of the Holy Spirit, even as our elders prepare throughout the week to lead us in the pastoral prayer. There is a time for both extemporaneous prayers, spur-of-the-moment prayers. You probably pray those today over your meal. You don't, like, pull out a prepared prayer. It's God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen. But other than that, but it's authentic. We pray prayers of thanksgiving. Fifth, prayers of thanksgiving because we give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope to be is to God and his glory alone. We pray prayers of corporate repentance as Chris did this morning. Forgive us where our fear has driven us instead of faith, where we haven't been bold with the gospel because we've been fearful. Now, to be clear, an elder praying, as Chris did this morning, that God would forgive us from that does not result automatically in the forgiveness of every individual that's here this morning. We don't live under the old covenant, and pastors are not priests. But we see, even in the New Testament, examples of praying as in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. And the pastoral prayer is an opportunity to be reminded. It's a shepherding of the flock to remember that sin is not just egregious big things in our own mind, but it reminds us of other sin that we so often forget and draws us to repentance. So that as Chris prayed this morning, forgive us for being fearful instead of faithful, you might think, yep, Father, forgive me too. Finally, we pray for other churches. We pray for other churches because it reminds us that we are just one outpost of the kingdom of God. It reminds us of the bigness of God. It humbles us. Again, it removes the tentacles of pride. It reminds us that there are many faithful churches in this community and beyond of which we are just one among many. And we want to see God work powerfully in those churches. Just as we pray he would work here. And I pray that our prayers when we gather together corporately also help model, help teach, help encourage, help demonstrate and pattern a way to pray. That it would strengthen your own prayer life through our corporate prayers. And so as I said, in the weeks ahead, I would just encourage you, even as you listen to the prayers from this platform, as well as the prayers in your small group and Sunday school classes, to be thinking and maybe, oh yeah, there's a component. There's that component. And learn. We're going to close this morning's service by praying together.